Being a chef means keeping your cool in the kitchen. And with Resi Priority Notify and Global Dining Access through my Amex Platinum card, right this way, it's nice to try someone else's food for a change. That's the powerful backing of American Express. Terms apply. Learn more at americanexpress.com slash with Amex. MTV's official Challenge podcast is back for another season. And so are we. I'm Tori Deal. And I'm Anissa Ferreira. The wait is over, guys. All Stars 4 is finally here. And this season takes it to a whole new level. Old school legends, modern power players, and ex-lovers are all competing in Cape Town, South Africa for the prize of $300,000. And we're going to be right here along with you fans covering every episode on the podcast. Listen to MTV's official challenge podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Hannah Storm, and my new podcast, NBA DNA with Hannah Storm, chronicles my six decades in professional basketball. From growing up in the sport to becoming one of sports TV's first female broadcasters. Join me as I dig deep into the game's history, unearth some wild stories, and talk to my friends from the world of basketball, from Dr. J to Charles Barkley. It's been a wild ride, and now I get to take you with me. Listen to NBA DNA with Hannah Storm on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. What's up, everybody? This is Stephen A. Smith, host of the Stephen A. Smith Show podcast. Tune in every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday at the very least as I bring you all new episodes that feature the biggest headlines in the world of sports, pop culture, business, and I answer your phone calls and respond to your tweets. You'll hear my unfiltered opinions and straight-shooter interviews with top celebrities and game changers. All that and more. So listen to the Stephen A. Smith Show podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcast. What's up, Open Floor Globe? This is Ben Golliver with The Washington Post. I'm joined on the other line by Michael the Pod Pina of 538 and GQ. Michael, I hope you're ready I hope you're braced and ready to start sprinting through an offseason. You know, you and I were thinking we were going to have all this time to fill. Maybe it would be Martin Luther King Jr. Day when the NBA restarted next season. Maybe it would be into February. Who knows? Uh, Reports came out last week uh, that there's a new plan, a different plan. It sounds a little bit like what uh, they were discussing before the bubble, uh, and which is that the NBA at this point is considering uh, restarting the 2020-2021 uh, season before Christmas. Sham Sharania of the Athletic reports that date could be December 22nd. Um, if you look at the amount of time that passed from the end of the, the NBA Finals to that start date, it's almost about half, uh, a little bit more than half of a typical uh, offseason. So they're really condensing uh, this year's offseason. The idea is that the draft would take place November 18th, followed pretty quickly by a blitz free agency period. Teams would have to report, obviously, a few weeks before they'd start playing games, and then they would be off. Michael, I'm just curious, big picture, when you're hearing the the specifics of this plan, which also includes just a 72-game season rather than a full 82-game season, and also just that short offseason that I'm describing, does this sound like a good idea or a bad idea? I mean, this is a lot different than sort of the messaging that they were telegraphing here over the last month or two. Kind of threw mm-hmm. people for a loop last week. Thumbs up or thumbs down to the general idea? I mean, I feel like it's just a necessary idea, given the reality of the country and the reality of coronavirus and 
Over the weekend, we had a record high in this country for reported cases in a day. So clearly, we're going in the wrong direction. I think that that must have influenced this decision a great deal because, look, the whole point of kind of pushing it back until late February or March is to have fans in the seats. That does not seem likely by February or March, um, given how uh, our country has kind of handled things. So it just feels like this is what needs to be done in order to stabilize the future, which I I agree with. I think, obviously, taking care of the 2021-2022 season should be the priority right now. And it's going to be really tricky and weird looking, and we're going to talk a lot about that. uh, with the 72-game season kind of sprint to another championship, which feels like, I mean, we just had one. Um, so it's weird, but it's it's just necessary. Yeah, I, I, well said. Because, look, the whole idea of pushing back to February or March was that, hey, maybe you couldn't have 20,000 fans in every building, but maybe you could have a large number of fans in a lots of buildings, and that would help you um, you know, generate a bunch of revenue, and it would be worth missing out on potentially the Christmas showcase game, or it'd be worth mm-hmm. pushing your playoffs you know, deeper into the summer as opposed to trying to get it back aligned to June. I think the problem that they're facing is it's possible, given where the coronavirus is right now, that some arenas will never be able to have fans back at all this coming season, right? I mean, if we were looking back to March, we were thinking that the impact on uh, the 2020-2021 season for the coronavirus would be relatively minimal. I mean, we, we probably thought maybe that there would be a delayed start, maybe some fans wouldn't be allowed in, but like it would probably be back to normal by next year. And as you mentioned, a record high case count this weekend, really no end in sight, no vaccine that's going to be widely distributed, uh, you know, for fans to be able to access uh, to get back into the the buildings uh, at any time soon. So waiting that extra two months really does you no good. And I mm-hmm. guess in, in certain cases, it could do you some harm. Uh, I think the NBA learned a real lesson by hosting its playoffs against other competition like the NFL, college football, and Major League Baseball. The ratings were down, and and that's been something that's taken place across all sports. I think that there's a a lot of disruption going on in people's everyday lives and and probably a lot of cord cutting going on, uh, even more so for financial reasons. But I think if you're the NBA, the, the value of getting your playoffs back on track in the normal television slot of May and June is worth a lot. The value of having a Christmas Day, you know, opening week uh, to build some buzz, you know, coming after, uh, you know, a a weird offseason and and the weird NBA restart in Orlando uh, is definitely worth something too. So I could understand why they're leaning this direction. At the same time, are we sure the players and the teams here are going to be ready to go to play by December 22nd? I mean, we're talking about just a little bit more than two months after the end of the NBA Finals. I mean, surely they need a little bit more rest time than that, don't they? I mean, that's the other elephant in the room, for sure. Um, I mean, it's kind of like a a double-edged sword. You have the teams that were in the bubble that played, uh, that you know, they just had their season's end, and they need or are familiar with, you know, a four-month layoff for rest and recovery and kind of building their bodies back up for the grind of an 82-game season. But then you also have, you know, the teams that just, like, haven't played in 15 years, like like the Cleveland Cavaliers, the Detroit Pistons, all these players who have just been completely out of, like, competitive basketball for so long, all of a sudden throwing them into a 
just a sprint. Like a, this is going to be like a whirlwind season. There's going to be a lot of games, uh, and uh, there's probably going to be less travel than normal, which should be good. But I do wonder about you know the muscle tissue stuff, the fact that. You know, they're all out of a bubble now. So if you are a player and you do test positive for coronavirus, even if you're asymptomatic, you're probably going to need to uh, uh, quarantine and you're definitely going to need to quarantine for a while. You're not going to be able to work out. There's a deconditioning that takes place because of that. So I think it's just a really complicated situation for the players physically um and i mean i I, the more i think about this the more i'm just coming to the conclusion that they want to start as quickly as possible so that you know they're not in a situation where the country is somehow even worse in march with the coronavirus and so they can just kind of zoom through and get this season kind of wrapped up with Is, is that like a fair assessment do you think well the bubble's official slogan was whole new game i feel like next season's official (laughs) slogan is bite the bullet i mean doesn't that what it it, it feels like right they're just trying to bite the bullet and get through this thing and then they really want to be completely aligned for the following year hoping that coronavirus and, and the pandemic has kind of you know reached its conclusion by then that's that's sort of how i'm reading it um, your point on the fact that some teams haven't played since, Mar- since March is a great one because this is not like a sprint off season for them. They've been sitting around for seven months now holding some involuntary camps, but other than that, really not doing anything. So they're raring to go. So uh, for them not to have to be off for almost an entire calendar year, I'm sure is welcome news. And if you look back, I think 22 of the 30 teams were done playing by September 2nd. Um, because that's when the first round of the playoffs ended in the bubble. So from that standpoint, you have a, a large majority, uh, you know, basically three quarters of the teams um, having been uh, off for, you know, more than three months before the start of the season. I think that's helpful. So, you know, you're, you're asking teams like the Lakers, Heat, Celtics, Nuggets, who really had a, a tough go in the bubble. And the burden is falling on them a little bit more. But I also think we should keep in mind does it necessarily matter? If you're only playing 72 games, if you're not able to play in front of large crowds because of the coronavirus, are we going to be back in a situation where home court's not that big of a deal? Like if you're the Lakers, you just need to make the playoff field, right? You don't necessarily have to worry about vying for a one seed or vying for a two seed. All this talk we heard about LeBron coming in and setting a defensive tone last season. I'm not sure there needs to necessarily be a defensive tone in empty arenas in on Christmas, right? Like, I think you could probably just like slowly ramp that up if you're one of the best teams. So I think we're going to see a lot of uh, schedule management by the teams that went deep into the bubble, you know, trying to keep the miles off their guys, trying to pace themselves, just trying to make the playoffs rather than necessarily gunning all out for the number one seed. Um, and then, uh, you know, from there, you know, we'll see how it plays out with the, the injury issues that you mentioned, which is a great point. Um I guess, you know, big picture here, Michael, are you ready for it? Like, not, if, put aside the players. I mean, I'm not worried about you having a soft tissue injury from typing too much or anything like that. But, like, mentally, we usually have this real routine about how the offseason goes and we get some downtime and we can uh, unplug a little bit. And we're going to be into the draft here in a couple of weeks and we're going to be straight into a quick free agency period. Then it's going to be time practically for training camp. How are you feeling mentally? Because my head's spinning a little bit, I'll be honest. Yeah, I don't think I'm in that headspace yet to kind of process the season coming back as soon as it apparently will. Um, you know, I was I was thinking um, 
like February. That was kind of my baseline over under just this whole time. Um, kind of just caught in the middle between March and, and Martin Luther King day. Um, but, you know, I wasn't really in bas- a, a, a headspace for basketball leading up to the bubble, to be honest with you. I mean, you can probably go back and listen to some of those episodes that we recorded in that downtime during those four months. And I mean, I really wasn't super engaged until the game started. And then, I, you know, I'd watch them and I'd get caught up in narratives and caught up in the excitement and the thrill of just watching NBA basketball again. Um, so, I mean, my personally, like my circadian rhythms or whatever are just like all over the place right now. And I think Dame Lillard said the same thing where he just really wants his summer off season back to kind of get back into a, a, a baseline normality. Um, but yeah, I'm right now. I, I, you said your head was spinning. That's basically where I'm at as well. Yeah, so I went out and, and got some wilderness time, some forest time last week. And typically, <laughs> I, I do try to do that during the offseason a little bit. And I came back, you know, back into service after being a, away for seven hours. And what do you know? Like, we're all going to have to reconvene in less than two months. And I was not expecting that news, um, you know, just based on what it, the conversations coming out of the bubble. I did totally understand where they're coming from. But I also wonder if they're going to have uh, some buy-in issues, if the NBA is going to have that problem, uh, you know, because... Look, there was a real novelty aspect to the bubble, right? It was the first time. It was Disney World. People are heading down there. Everyone's really excited. All these Twitter accounts are starting bubble life. You know, that's its own kind of uh, attraction, right? I think now what you're looking at is potentially playing a regular season in empty, cavernous arenas. Players are going to be traveling. There will be positive tests, and there were no positive tests, and there was no distractions from a health standpoint in the bubble. Um, So that's going to create some negative headlines. You're also going to have a season that's just not a typical season. You're breaking from history by, you know, shrinking down to 72 games. And you're, you know, a large percentage of your fan base that wants to stay invested by going to games or at least like seeing their friends on TV or seeing their community reflected on TV. That aspect will likely not be there, especially at the start of the season. I'm just wondering, like, is this going to be kind of sad? Like, I'm not trying to ruin Christmas. I'm not saying coal in the stockings, Michael. But is this going to be a situation where it feels rushed, where it feels kind of half-hearted, thrown together, where, as I've mentioned, the very top teams might not be super motivated coming right out of the gate. We might see some games, you know, 160 to 150, sort of like some of those bubble regular season games that we saw where no one's playing defense because, you know, there's no fans to keep you accountable. You're just out there having a good time playing pickup. I'm just wondering, like, there was a real excitement factor around the bubble starting, especially for me personally. I'm not totally sure I yet feel that same excitement around a, a Christmas start, right? Like normally we're, we're circling the the five games they're going to play on Christmas. We're ranking which ones are the best matchups. We're getting excited about, you know, which former player is going to play his former team or do the Lakers get the Celtics or the Heat? I mean, those kinds of questions, right? And it just feels a little bit too soon. And I do think it feels a little half-hearted here. And it's not necessarily the NBA's fault. I'm not blaming anyone. I just think it's a byproduct, again, of the coronavirus just kind of ruining everybody's plans and enforcing some tough compromises. Yeah, I mean, I think another really uh, tricky thing that the league needs to be weary of, speaking of player buy-in, is just... And you brought this up earlier, but like load management. And are we going to see accelerated load management to a degree where, uh, you know, nationally televised games have just like no merit and no interest because Giannis isn't playing or LeBron isn't playing or Kawhi is, I mean, Kawhi is probably going to play like 10 games this season. 
So, so like, I, I, you know, really marketing the game is going to be a chore, I think, for the league. Um, and that's because these guys probably aren't going to be as invested in this regular season as they would normally be, right? Like for a phys- for just like their own physical well-being and um, everything that's going on around them is just so surreal. Uh, I do wonder, though, just from the perspective of watching on television, um, do you think it, it, it's physically possible for these arenas, you know, you, you describe them as being cavernous and empty and all that, but like... I do wonder if it's possible, and maybe it isn't, for them to kind of replicate what they did in at Walt Disney World, where there's virtual fans and there's artificial sound, and there's a product visually that isn't too dissimilar from what we're used to. Um, do you think that that is like realistic, or just it's just going to be super weird? Oh, it's tricky because I mean. First of all, I hope they don't go to the cardboard fans. That killed me. You know, I'd way rather no, have the virtual no. <laughs> fans than the cardboard fans. Um, now, in terms of the backdrop, I'm sure they could construct a backdrop. You know, a lot of those arenas, you can take all the seats out, right? They can be like multi-use arenas. So you can Just kind throw of- Throw down some tarp, yeah. You can put whatever you want behind. But I also think there's going to be situations where some teams are going to be allowed to have fans in, right? I don't think it's going to be a universal standard here uh, because it's going to be based on local jurisdictions. Are you allowed to hold mass gatherings indoors, right? And some places you're going to be able to do that, some places you won't. And I imagine the arenas that will be able to be opened, um, you know, after they get the okay from local governments are going to want to open and have as many fans as they possibly can uh, because, you know, they want to generate revenue. And I believe the report came out from the Associated Press that there was a 1.5 billion hit. I mean, that's right in line with sort of expectations uh, to the NBA, you know, from its uh, revenue adjustment. And that's no small, you know, piece of the pie. And so they're looking around to kind of make that money back Mm -hmm. uh, however they possibly can. And so I think we're going to see a very inconsistent visual product, right? I can see some arenas having some fans in there. Maybe they're socially distanced and spread out. I could see some others trying to go with the tech boards like you're describing. Um, I could see others just like, you know, putting some cardboard cutouts up there and calling it good. That would be really sad. And I guess I'm curious, like, you know, from a coverage perspective, like, would you be excited to go to Barclays Center to cover Kevin Durant's debut, say? in an empty arena like is that exciting I, I there's some excitement i could see there but what about like two weeks down the road when it's nets hornets tuesday night empty building like is your is your interest in going to cover that game change at all without the fans there without the atmosphere i mean to be honest with you i've thought about this just i don't know what media access is going to look like like i i you know I probably am not going to be um, staying up the night before a Hornets-Nets game, just like an anticipation of, of what that experience is going to be like uh, in March or April or whenever. Um, so, I, I mean, I can't I, – I just don't see myself being, like, super gung-ho for – safety reasons first and foremost about sitting in an arena and just being around people for that long mask or no mask socially distanced or not socially distanced um and i do wonder you know going back to your point about all these different arenas looking um unlike one another in terms of just the whether fans are going to be inside or not i i you know if i was a player i would not i mean i'm sure that there's a way to test everyone and make sure people or maybe there isn't make sure people are are 
um, do not have coronavirus who enter the buildings. But like, if you're just opening it up for fans inside, I know that the ceilings are super high and all that. But like, everything that we know about just how this uh, disease kind of spreads, if I was a player, I wouldn't be super pumped about playing basketball games with like over a thousand people just coughing and sneezing and talking, no matter how far away they are from me, for that long of a sustained period throughout an entire season. I mean, I might be a little, like, super precautious or overly cautious here, but that's. I think the players might have a problem with that, no, to be honest with you. It's a great point, and look, we gave the NBA a lot of credit, especially I did, for their health and safety protocols down in the bubble. Once we figured out what life was like, it was super strict, it was super tight, it worked perfectly, not a single person tested positive, and they got to claim the moral high ground there, right? Now, that changes. If you're going to try to use 30 arenas, if you're going to try to use markets and you're traveling and you're trying to open up to fans and you're exposing the players to some coronavirus risks, and obviously you do have to negotiate that out with the players. Now, I think from the players' perspective, they're thinking, look, we gave up so much of our normal lives in the bubble that we just don't want to do that again for a six-month stretch over the course of the regular season. And that's totally understandable, right? And yep. so, you know, if, if you don't want to live in a bubble, then you have to assume some of that coronavirus risk. Now, at this point, I do think we know a little bit more about the disease than we did back when they were first negotiating the bubble, which was sort of like in May and June, right? Like, I think the death rates uh, for people in, in the player's age are lower. You know, I think that we, um, you know, we just have a better understanding of how it can kind of be treated. Not necessarily that there's a cure, but there's, you know, more uh, comprehensive approaches. People know what to look for. They, they know the best practices and they're a little bit more, um, you know, practiced in those in terms of, you know, maintaining social distancing, wearing the mask and those kinds of things. Mm -hmm. The players have gotten through that message. So, I think that's helpful. You know, at the same time, before they showed up uh, to the bubble, a lot of players had tested positive, right? And there was some question, and I believe you wrote on this, that maybe some players were impacted, um, you know, their abilities by testing positive. So these are really complicated ethical questions for the NBA, and they're opening up Pandora's box if they do kind of, uh, you know, shift gears here and try to you know, play a more normal, quote-unquote, season with, with the travel and with these different arenas. Now, I guess... Before they start the season, they will release whatever their new health and safety protocols are. I would be shocked if they're letting anyone have access to the court. My guess would be they would uh, be protecting the players, almost trying to create a soft bubble around those players at all times, right? So that, uh, you know, fans would have to be way back. Um, you know, arena workers would have to be way back. Ball boys would have to have masks and gloves and all those kinds of things that we saw in the bubble. I think a lot of those lessons would kind of carry forward. Um, but, uh, yeah, no, it's, it's definitely, uh, complicated and tricky. And I do think the NBA is exposing itself a little bit here to criticism because there is the possibility now that they're going to have some outbreaks like we've seen in, in baseball and, and football. And th those were storylines and critiques that they just completely avoided, uh, thanks to the bubble. Right. And I mean, baseball has been able to play games, um, shout out to the Tampa Bay Rays, Winning Game 4. I know Game 5 was a dud, but Game 4 was very interesting and a great ending. So, shout out to them. Oh, big Rays um, fan now after the last episode where <laughs> Ricky read you the riot act about your, uh, you know, Boston uh, roots trading Mookie bets and all that stuff. He actually, I, in Ricky's defense, Michael, he followed up. 
he said you sounded so hurt that he wanted to apologize. That it sounded like he oh, had pained Ricky. you so deeply that uh, you know. He, I appreciate it. He issued a formal apology on behalf of LA sports fans, just gleeful at Boston's <laughs> ability to set up their titles with the Lakers and the Dodgers. Right. So, well, thank you, Ricky. I appreciate that. Um, my point was basically just that you know baseball's been able to play games because. Uh, you know, baseball stadiums are outdoors for the most part, if not all of them, I'm pretty sure. Um, and uh, uh, football games are, are primarily, if not all, played outdoors, outside, college football outside. I just think it's a different dynamic um, playing NBA games, I think, throughout the uh, throughout a lengthy regular season. There's going to be some fatigue with the rules and regulations and enforcing rules and just being more lax, which is just natural. And it's what we've kind of seen throughout the country in every level and area of society right now. Um, it's a big reason why cases are going up right now. Um, so I, I just think it's it's a really tricky situation. And I definitely agree with what you're saying. Like, they'll try to make sure that no one can be at the court level and all that. But, you know, as in kind of the early days with baseball – and even with football, from my understanding, like some players, you, you catch it when you're traveling too. Like I, I did a reporting trip uh, last week, my first one of the pandemic, and I was went on an airplane and it was like jarring. Like I, I was just like completely uh, not feeling it at all. I was really uncomfortable on the flight. And even though no one was in my row, it was just super weird. Did I have enough protection in terms of like I only had one mask on and should I be double masking like it was just a whole thing it's not cool at all and I know they're traveling in a different situation than I am they're not f- flying commercial but you still are but they're just flying a lot people. and you're interacting with a yeah. lot of people right I mean I think that's where yeah. it gets tricky but even if you're playing 72 games I mean, that's a lot of flights. And even if you're, you know, they're talking about doing this thing where you almost play series, right? So you travel to a city and if you have to play that team twice over the course of the season, you play them on back-to-back nights or you, you play them, you know, two and three nights, something like that. And then you move forward to that next uh, that next uh, city. I mean, that's a good idea and it will definitely cut down on the total miles. But we're still talking about dozens and dozens of flights and hundreds of potential contacts with people. And it's just so much different than the, the bubble environment. So, the NBA is assuming a fair amount of risk here. I also wonder, though, is the backlash at this point just lower, right? Have we become numb to the positive tests across sports where I think the NBA was really sensitive that they didn't want to put its players in harm's way? They didn't want to have blood on their hands last summer, right? But have we all been so, you know, just overwhelmed by this virus for so long? The NBA feels like, well, we can play our season. Everybody else has had seasons uh, fans are used to seeing positive tests. NFL games have kind of been wrecked. College games have kind of been wrecked. I mean, I was watching Michigan, Minnesota uh, this mm-hmm. this weekend uh, go blue, and like half of Minnesota's team—not really, but like their kicker, their punter, like seven of their players, something like that—I don't know exact number—were just like late scratches right before kickoff, without actually giving the official reason that they had tested positive. But I mean, what else would? What other reason would there be? Yeah, and um, I mean, they barely even mentioned it on the broadcast. They just kind of glossed over it. Their third string punter was kicking like 18 yard punts. I mean, it was like worse than what you and I could do, Michael, <laughs> because they had so many guys who were who were gone. And I just do think that we've become a little bit more accustomed to it. So is the NBA sort of banking on that, right? Are they saying, well, look, even if we do get positive tests, we're not going to face the same backlash in January and February 
that we would have, you know, say last uh, July or August. I mean, that would be uh, supremely cynical. I don't think that that is what the league is. Well, I'm not saying that's like motivating them. I just think that that's that's kind of a reality though, right? I mean, like if you're weighing this thing or even if you're a player like – and you're, and you're thinking like maybe in June and July, I can't get this virus like no matter what, you know, and then six months passes and it's like, well, you know, this thing's not going away. I would like to be able to live at home with my wife and children if possible. I will have to take some flights, you know, for you, for example, you probably wouldn't have gotten on that plane in April, but you did get on that plane in, in October. You weren't comfortable, but you still did it. There has been some level of evolution with uh, respect to our understanding and our own personal approach towards this virus. Same thing for me. I would not have gone out to the wilderness in April or May under any circumstances, right? I was under strict home quarantine, you know, personal house arrest. Uh, You know, I I arrested myself, Michael. Um, And yet I felt a little (laughs) bit more comfortable, you know, a few months later doing it safely and and assuming some level of risk. Does that change in society kind of factor into the, uh, the NBA's thinking, I guess, is my question. Yeah, maybe. I, I mean, we do know just more about the virus than we did in April and in March when the season shut down. So from that perspective, um, you know, decisions are going to be made that reflect it. Uh, I I still think that there are a lot of unknowns that if I was a player, I wouldn't be super pumped about getting coronavirus. Um, and there are still there's still a lot that we do not know. And it's still a humongous risk. So, you know, I think that the NBA is uh, I don't think that they're lying when they say that the priority here is the health of the players. I think that that was obviously money is a is a humongous motivator. But the way that they behaved um, and the actions that they took to make the bubble such a success really reflects the the fact that they care about the health of the players and the players of a players association that. Uh, you know, employs its own team of cardiologists, and uh, they're able to kind of figure out what the smartest way to attack this is and still play basketball games. So I don't think that necessarily, like, the culture's response and society's general response at large will impact or lessen the league's um, commitment to the safety of its players, if that makes any sense. It does. You mentioned right at the top that sort of, uh, you know, this was the NBA kind of having its hand forced by the coronavirus. They didn't really have a choice. When you're sitting back Mm -hmm. and looking at what they are proposing right now, is there any aspect of it that you would want to change? Is there a better alternative? Are they just making the best of a bad situation? This is the bite the bullet season that I'm describing. Is there any of this that uh, you would consider changing? I think for me, if I could... You know, if, if you don't have access to all 30 arenas, do you really need to be flying these guys around constantly, right? Could you do some hub city yeah. situation? Could you, you know, kind of have a shortened road trips? And, you know, I, I forgot to mention earlier as well, it, it sounds like there won't be an all-star weekend this year. It was scheduled for Indianapolis. Uh, never heard a single person say they were excited to go to that one, to be honest. Uh, but, it's devastating. Yeah, but um, <laughs> but uh, that that's like on the table now, or the cutting table as well. So uh, to me, that kind of just adds to the overall morose feeling, just kind of the sadness entering the season. And I'm sure I'll talk myself into it by the time we get closer to the opening night. But at least right now, I mean, that's just one more factor that kind of has me, oh boy, like what is this next year even going to look like? Is there anything else you would change? No, I mean, I think you nailed it with the the 
hub cities or like I don't think that they want to brand them as mini bubbles because I think the players association would run for the hills. Um, but that's basically what I think they should do. And I think they should have several of them, you know, not just two or three or four, like even more of them just to, to limit travel. Um, I don't know where you would, I think the, the big question there is just like, where do you like lodge the players if they were to stay, let's say like in a week in one city or something like that. Um, but it would have the feel of a road trip, right? Like an extended road trip, you know, some teams, are on the road away from their families for for weeks at a time. So from that sense, I don't think that it would be super unfamiliar to the players and maybe they could make do and agree. But yeah, limiting travel as much as possible. Like I don't see, you know, a, a team just, you know, play, flying to Portland to play a game and then flying to Denver the next day to play a game and then two days later flying to Dallas to play. like that just doesn't make any sense especially if they're all. all empty you know that's the thing it's just like so sad I mean that would really get me down if I was a player it's like hey we're going up to Portland usually we get to show those blazer maniacs what we're about empty building then you fly to Denver hey it's the mile high city everybody's excited for Jamal Murray well no they're not because there's nobody in the building like doing that over and over again or like the Boston Philly rivalry games just you know, who's throwing the batteries, Michael? What like what? Who you know? Those batteries aren't. Me. They're not. I'll be there. <laughs> they're not going to throw themselves. Um, yeah, I just. It's tough, man. It's uh, it's a tough spot to be in. Uh, I want to ask you a question, and I want to actually open this one up to our Open Floor Globe members. Guys, email us uh, an answer to this question. Openfloormail at gmail.com. Openfloormail at gmail.com. When and in what situations, Michael, would you be willing to purchase a ticket as a fan? to watch an NBA game. So take the media part out of it. Like, do you think you would be comfortable at any point in this upcoming season purchasing a ticket to go to a game? How many fans would need to be limited for you to feel comfortable? How much space do you need? As you've mentioned, it's indoors and all of that. What kind of conditions would get you back in the building? Ooh, that's a really good question. Um, well, I ask it because, you know, I'm a big Michigan football fan, as I mentioned, yeah. and I go to a game every year at the big house. It's like an annual pilgrimage, right? And um, there is no possible way you're getting me at a Michigan football game this year, period. Oh, no. it, it doesn't even matter. Like College kids? Yeah. No, 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 no. Well, I just, I mean, it's the biggest stadium there is. Even if it was like, hey, we only have a thousand tickets, you've won a raffle, you get one of the thousand out of a hundred thousand seat arena, or sorry, stadium. I would still say, no, I'm good. I don't want to get on the flight. I don't want to do it. And even if I lived right next door to it, no, I'm not I'm not, I'm not. not doing that because it's non-essential activity. I can't justify it. It's around too many other people. The, the risk just isn't worth the reward, even though I really cherish going to those games. So I'm curious, where does your risk reward meter go for, uh, for NBA games? I mean, it's it's like obviously I I don't want to get it. I don't want to be asymptomatic and spread it to someone. Um, I think you know when I whenever I like weigh a decision that I make on a day to day about you know grocery shopping or what I'm going to do and where I'm going to go, a lot of it is just like okay, if I go somewhere and I were to contract coronavirus, like that means um, I, I think about the people I would be putting at risk. I think about. Um, okay, so my parents are trying to visit in 10 days. So that, that, like, that's just not going to happen. Um, 
if I want to go and I don't even know, like go laser play laser tag, even though there's no, I don't ever do that. And there's no uh, opportunity to, but you catch what I'm saying. Like go to a, go to, if I were to go to an NBA game tomorrow, let's say hypothetically, um, I would not feel comfortable doing so because I could endanger a loved one in 10 days or 14 days or whatever. So it would honestly like require, uh, like for me to feel comfortable, I would, need to get tested fairly often afterwards which as longtime listeners of this show know that is not like my forte although this does present an opportunity for me to let everyone know that i was tested again with the the deep nasal swab ben again Um, again after i came back from my reporting trip uh to a it was from a state that had uh, an extremely high case count and so I was told that I should probably slash almost mandatory, you know, get tested upon return. So I did it. Uh, it came back negative. But I did weather another one of those tests that was just really. Did you cry um, this time, Michael? Everybody remembers you as the big crybaby from the first yeah. one. And we had people from all over the world, particularly our uh, woman listeners, <laughs> let you know how soft you were. I mean, it was different continents yeah. were weighing in. But this time you managed not to cry or you cried again? There was there was no tears. Hey, um, progress. Yeah, I think the first time, honestly, that th- they messed up. Like they went too deep. That's where what I'm telling myself <laughs> and what I'm telling everyone around me. Yeah, well, um, you haven't so been that's... the same since. You know, they obviously <laughs> poked something that they weren't supposed to poke. Back to your point, though, on you know feeling comfortable and and weighing the societal risk and all that. I'm with you. I don't think as a fan, there's really any way I would go to an NBA game. I do think you know as media members, they can kind of like. You know, cordon off our our row a little bit, spread us out. You know, kind of be in a, a, a you know a, a somewhat safer like sitting environment. So there's probably a situation where I would be able to come to terms with that. I would also feel professionally obligated, like you know, as a journalist, to do my job. If if that was if the doors were open to media members, I would feel you know very strongly that I need to be there. Um, as a fan, though, I don't think I could justify it at any point during the upcoming season, especially if the cases continue to go as they've been. Um, it's just a bad idea, and I wouldn't want to be—I wouldn't want to be on the wrong side of history. And I think going to a sporting event right now as a fan, which a lot of people are out there doing, I think you're just on the wrong side of history. You're making things worse. So that's a huge challenge for the NBA. And again, I think that's why the upcoming season is called the Bite the Bullet season for sure. MTV's official Challenge podcast is back for another season, and guess what? So are we. Just in case you forgot, I'm Tori Deal. I'm a six-time finalist and a Challenge champion. And I'm Anissa Ferrer, and I've been gracing your screens for the last two decades. I am a veteran challenger and Challenge All-Star. And speaking of All-Stars, All-Stars 4 is finally here. I'm going to be honest. I literally thought this day was never going to come. Well, the challenge gods have answered our prayers and we're going to be right here along with you fans covering every episode on the podcast. And this season takes it to a whole new level. Old school legends, modern power players, redemption seekers, and ex-lovers are all competing in Cape Town, South Africa for the prize of $300,000. Anyone can win, relationships matter, and only one all-star will claim the title of Challenge Champion. Listen to MTV's official Challenge podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. 
The Nikki Glazer Podcast. Her roast of Tom Brady stole the show. Now she's talking about it on the latest episode of the Nikki Glazer Podcast. I said, tell Tom Brady that I'm the Tom Brady of roasting. Lots of people roasted the goat, but only Nikki is still being talked about. Every time I refresh my DMs, it's 14 blue check marks of people I didn't even know who knew me are writing like paragraphs to me. Hear that in all episodes of the Nikki Glazer Podcast on America's number one podcast network, iHeart. Open your free iHeart app and search the Nikki Glazer Podcast. To start listening. If you love sports and true crime, then there's a new podcast from executive producer Dan Patrick and hosted by me, Jay Harris, that you won't want to miss. Playing Dirty Sports Scandals. Each week, I'm squeezing the juiciest details from some of the biggest sports scandals ever. I'm talking Marcus Dixon, Olympic gymnastics, Kane Velasquez, salacious Super Bowl-level scandals, Join me on the dark side of sports by listening to Playing Dirty Sports Scandals on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. What's up, everybody? This is Stephen A. Smith. When I'm not at my day job, first tape, you can find me in my studio hosting the Stephen A. Smith Show podcast. Tune in every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday, at the very least, as I bring you all new episodes that feature the biggest headlines in the world of sports, pop culture, business, and politics. You'll hear my unfiltered opinions on those nauseating cowboy fans, the chaos in Washington, D.C., and trending topics on social media, as well as my straight-shooter interviews with top celebrities and game changers. And I occasionally give out love advice. Yes, it's true. If you want to know my true feelings about something, I'll give it to you straight. So listen to the Stephen A. Smith Show podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcast. All right, Michael, that's enough on their current plans. We will double back later this week if anything else firms up. It might not be until next week, but we should have some resolutions here pretty soon because they wanted to kind of pull this thing together by the end of the month. So once that happens, we will dig in uh, to a little bit more details. And I do hope, for everyone's sake, Michael, that I can wrap my mind around this a little bit more so I'm not quite as sad about it because at this particular moment, it just feels so rushed and uh, you know the prospect of playing these games, not in a bubble, not with that cool soundstage and just you know, almost like reenacting the baseball season, but in basketball form, sounds mm-hmm. pretty sad, man. It just, it mm-hmm. does. And look, it's a bummer. Not Nobody's fault, but it, it's still a bummer. All right, we got some great questions here from the Open Floor Globe. They emailed us, openfloormail at gmail.com, openfloormail at gmail.com. I want to start with Anton, who's following up on your hope that Giannis winds up on the Dallas Mavericks with Luka. He says, Look, I do not want to see that, and you asked for the reason, so here it is real quick. Kevin Durant and Steph Curry had zero MVPs each when they played together. Luka Doncic has a shot at being the greatest player of all time, and Giannis going to the Mavericks would hurt that. Let him try for a while before throwing in another potential top 20 all-time player who would take away his shine. Maybe this team-up scenario could happen once they're in their 30s. Michael, so... We didn't really discuss the Luca legacy impact uh, to this. Um, would uh, you know recruiting Giannis damage Luca's legacy by taking away some of the shine, or would it have an enhancement effect? In other words, he's such a magnetic personality that even big time stars want to come come play with him. Uh, you know, do you think they're going to split the votes for MVP like uh, uh, like our guy Anton is suggesting, or do you want to push back on his argument? 
No, I mean, I don't even think that MVP is really like, when did MVP become the the bellwether mark of how we judge all time great players? Um, I mean, like, what do they <laughs> what do they matter? I think people care more about team success over individual success at the end of the day. Um, I think LeBron is widely considered to be the second or, or the best player in the history of the sport, and he has not won an MVP since 2013, and two of his MVPs came after he went to the Miami Heat and teamed up with Chris Bosh and Dwayne Wade. Kobe Bryant won zero MVPs uh, with Shaquille O'Neal as a teammate. Uh, you know, Magic Johnson was drafted into the NBA, and he has Kareem Abdul-Jabbar as a teammate. Uh, so... Like, just going down the line, all the great players have played with other great players. That's just how it goes. And LeBron, again, um, he just came in second with Anthony Davis on his team. So if the argument is that Luka can't win, I don't really buy that, even if that's kind of what the argument is here. No, um, great, great points. Luka's legacy is clean here, right? If he gets Giannis to come to oh, his yeah. team. But Giannis is the one who takes the hit, right? I... Look, if like Giannis goes to Dallas and uh, they win three straight titles, no one is going to care that Giannis went there. Like they just aren't, uh, in my opinion. Um, I think that that'll solidify him as this top potential top twenty all timer, which I don't really think is in the cards right now. I think that might be a controversial statement, but um, no, I think that it can only enhance. Giannis's situation because uh, at the end of the day he needs to win titles and this is not like a shortcut for him to go team up with Luca. in my opinion I don't even necessarily think that they would be the dominant favorite next year if that were to happen if they were to conduct a trade or something like that um, winning championships are, are really hard um, and no so I think that Luca's case would be clean as anything and I, I just don't think that it would really matter and I don't really compare it in a, I think that the KD Steph thing is just on its own island when we talk about stars changing teams. Like I, I think that his situation contextually after losing to the Warriors and then the Warriors losing in the finals and then him going to the Warriors after they already won the title in 2015 is just it's so much different than anything that that like that there's no relationship between Giannis and the Mavericks, right? So like I just don't I just don't compare it at all. Yeah, no, I, I hear you. I mean, it's definitely that was an anomaly that that decision by KD. I also think that like both KD and Steph had MVPs before they teamed up, right? And obviously Giannis has MVPs, so I think if he joins Luca's team, he is probably seeding his ability to win any future MVPs. But I'm not sure that that compromises Luca's ability to win MVPs, right? Like if no, they wind no. up being the number one seed, Luca's the premier playmaker. He's the one they kind of, you know, lured, his presence lured Giannis to Dallas. They're building around Luka. He's the face of the organization. You know, it's very similar to how LeBron almost won MVP this year, you know, finishing second. If, if Giannis hadn't been so spectacular, LeBron would have won it. I could see Luka winning an MVP, you know, averaging almost a triple-double, winning 60-plus games with Giannis as his number two guy. Like, I can see that happening. So I, I'm not sure that that part Easily. of the... Uh, the comparison, um, you know, applies. And also Steph was willing to sacrifice quite a bit once Katie showed up, right. In terms of his numbers anyways, and even his role, I don't think Luca would need to sacrifice as much just because of the nature of Giannis's game, right? Like I think Luca would still get his numbers pretty much with whoever he's playing and the guys yeah. around him would be, have to be the ones who kind of fit in there. And I think Giannis would be okay with that, by the way. So it's an interesting fit. Here's another question I've got for you. 
Michael, because when I started going through these Giannis scenarios, I think one of the big hangups is that all we see around the NBA is buddy ball. And we described like the parasitic relationships versus the symbiotic relationships and everything else. Mm -hmm. Like, is Giannis the last great loner? Like, is he the Lone Ranger? Like, does he have any friends in the NBA? He seems like he avoided being in Space Jam. You know, he didn't want to be part of that. You know, he's taking shots at James Harden over the All-Star weekend. He crowned himself in front of LeBron. He's obviously, I'm sure, still upset about how Kawhi locked him down in the Eastern Conference Finals. It doesn't seem like he has very many personal relationships with other stars around the league. Does that impact his free agency options, right? Like, where, you know, is he going to go team up with some of these guys he doesn't really seem like he likes? And he's head he's headbutted at this point, <laughs> half the league. Can you go team up with a guy who you headbutted? <laughs> yeah, I don't think he's going to sign with the Washington Wizards anytime soon. Um, no, I... I don't know. Do you know I where I'm going I with that? Because like Le- LeBron, no, yeah. he's like kind of, you know, the mastermind, right? Oh, I'm going to go pluck Anthony Davis from New Orleans or Kawhi Leonard saying, hey, I'll come to the Clippers as long as I can hand select my number two guy, Paul George, right? Kevin Durant and Kyrie Irving, they're like, you know, chatting behind their hands at All-Star Weekend in a tunnel, plotting their takeover of, of Brooklyn, New York, right? I mean, we see this stuff constantly. James Harden and Russell Westbrook, they go back to elementary school like Giannis's clique seems to be basically his brothers his immediate family members and that's it right have we you know other than like well if I real real quick like if I were to to ask you who is Kawhi Leonard's best friend in the NBA who who would you say I don't think Kawhi Leonard has friends but he does have that like that uh (laughs) that impulse of like look I know I need to have some help so I'm gonna go and get Paul George and he had enough juice to get Paul George to go along with it right um, that was no small power move by Kawhi Leonard last summer, and he had enough juice to get Steve Ballmer to finance the whole thing, including partying with all those draft picks. So that was a pretty impressive move by Kawhi Leonard. It was kind of one of those like, uh, you know, silent G's like lasagna or whatever that phrase is. Um, I think that was Kawhi Leonard. I'm sure I butchered that, but y- you know where I'm going there. Um, I'm not Real sure. Real G's move in silence like lasagna. There you go. Perfect. Yeah, I think that was that was Kawhi Leonard's offseason motto. Is Giannis, I mean, actually Giannis begins with a silent G, so maybe he can, he's got us all fooled. That's a, a very interesting <laughs> point that you're raising here. Um, however, I mean, if he calls up one of these other top 10 guys and says, hey, here's our game plan. We're going to go to destination A, B, or C. It, it, first of all, is he even willing to make that call? Second of all, are the guys saying, oh yeah, that sounds like a great plan. We just don't know, right? Uh, no, I mean, you bring up a really good point. I I think this is why when you, you know, you pull agents around the league and you pull team executives around the league, nobody thinks he's leaving Milwaukee. And I think that this is a significant reason why. There's the loyalty aspect and him wanting to follow through and win a title with the Bucks, the team that drafted him. Uh, and then there's just like, yeah, he doesn't really fit the mold of all the other players before him who have been free agents, who have kind of looked over the fence and seen greener grass uh so if you were his agent would you get him on like superstar tinder right now you know get get him swiping (laughs) a little bit maybe like (laughs) making some friendships or some relationships Mm -hmm. with a luka Doncic of the world because there are greener pastures out there right i mean if we're looking at milwaukee's situation it's not looking great right now in terms of his supporting cast but i agree with you it does seem like they're the prohibitive favorites to keep him because I don't know if I buy. I, I don't know if I buy the vision. I guess of him going to one of these other markets and, and teaming up with somebody else or joining someone else's team. It's just hard to picture. Um, 
and because it just seems like it's out of character for him and because you know as i'm describing he's sort of this loner this loner archetype so i don't know if they are gonna uh you know pursue a, an exit strategy it feels like they might need to get those balls rolling now you know what i mean uh both for Giannis's sake and just like the public perception's sake if you were his agent what do you think is the like grade a option here like what's the path that is just so ideal for the rest of his career well i i don't think he has any great options unfortunately because i i think interesting of, well first of all i think that the easy answer the fallback answer is milwaukee and i can easily see that mm-hmm. wind up being the answer um you know in terms of winning i think that you can make a case that the most titles and the most recognition would come from dallas I'd say Golden State belongs in that conversation too. Um, but also I would be a little bit nervous if I was him tying my future to players who were, you know, uh, a good... I would not go to Golden State. Yeah, another half generation or half decade older than him, right? So that would make me a little bit uncomfortable. Um you know, if you're trying to do a world takeover, though, Golden State's a pretty good place to do it, you know, from a financial standpoint, Silicon Valley and all that. If the Knicks could get rid of their owner front office oh, coach and roster that would be a pretty yeah. awesome landing spot for him um he can't go to chicago because that's sort of like milwaukee's big brother they've had the playoff battles and all that so he, that one's really out i don't love this miami idea because i think people would just say oh lebron did it better you know now you're living in his shadow the whole way so i, I think that toronto is pretty appealing you know for a, a global player i could see that being an, mm-hmm. an interesting fit for him so that might be my I might go like Milwaukee as the most likely, Dallas with the highest upside, Toronto as possibly the best fit. That's my that might be how I sort of forecast it. What about you? I mean, I went over this in our last episode. My opinion has not changed. I think that going to Dallas would just be incredible. So you're just um, Dallas or bust at this point. I mean, you don't even want to consider other so, options. It is it is so tantalizing just having those two be on the same team, having two international players who are arguably the or will be in two or three years like the first and second best player in the world right like that that's what is this is shaping up to look like for them so for them to be on the same team I just think it would be a tremendous storyline a tremendous narrative the basketball would be beautiful uh just watching those two run a pick and roll like who's not gonna have fun doing that I don't like I don't see the the counter argument, um, like, you know, it's, it's I, I the Adriatic that, all-stars. No, I, I hear you for sure. Okay. So we have been yeah. over that one. You have no second places. You're just, you're, you're Dallas or bust. You know, Miami is intriguing, but I, I see your point about LeBron. I don't think that that would be that much of a big deal for him in terms of just legacy. I think the fit might be a little weirder with their roster now and what their roster is looking like going forward. Like I, you know, the ball in so a lot of alphas, man. seems to be like a good, yeah. A lot of alphas um, there if you're bringing Giannis and Jimmy. I mean, that's going to definitely lead to a training camp fight. Could be a positive and productive fight, right? Yeah, but, that's fine. Sure. Um, I don't love the fit with Bam, though. No, I don't either. I don't like the fit with Bam. I don't like the fit in Toronto at all. I mean, obviously their roster will look very different in two or three years if they were to get Giannis than it does now. But Toronto has had a very difficult time signing free agents um, throughout their franchise's history. I don't think that'll change just because Giannis goes there, frankly. Um, I think a lot of players just don't like going to Canada for financial reasons and because it's cold, so that's not going to change. So, I mean, it's either stay in Milwaukee, supermax it, and like persevere and win a title 
um, without having to leave, which is something that LeBron could not do. I think that that is just like an old school, like the way that we think about Dirk's one title is like three KD titles or whatever, you know, so or two KD titles. So um, I think that that would be just narratively the most fulfilling the most satisfying i think is the right word um and but just like for me personally and i think just entertainment for entertainment purposes like dallas is just it and i'm I'm like really locked into this i love idea. it no i love it keep keep pushing that narrative maybe you'll be able to uh speak it into existence <laughs> hey michael thaddeus had a question for you he says how often are you imagining the moves that are possible for the boston celtics the Celtics have had more ammo than most teams since about two years after the Nets trade, and they're always a talking point. I think it's time for Danny Ainge to finally make a move. The Nets now have one superstar and another guy who thinks he's one. How bad would it be if the Nets got a title before Boston after spending over a half decade sending them draft picks? So he's trying to ramp up the pressure and get you to get into trader mentality, Michael. He goes on to say, I've got a three-way t- uh, trade I want to float out. Um, the Boston Celtics would get Victor Oladipo and Clint Capella. The Atlanta Hawks would get Jeremy Lamb, Enos Kanter, Romeo Langford, and the 26th pick. The Indiana Pacers would get Gordon Hayward, the 14th pick, and the 30th pick. I'd like to call this trade that the Celtics cash in their chips. They would move one injured unknown in Gordon Hayward for another in Oladipo, but he's younger, cheaper, and expires at the same time. Capella is basically what the Celtics want Robert Williams to become, but saving all that money flipping Oladipo means you can add him. Realistically, in next year's playoffs, is Langford or any of their three upcoming picks going to play in an important game? They would now be able to go big, small, and put an even nastier defensive lineup on the court and get two guys who are closer in age to Smart, Brown, and Tatum. Oh, and Boston's also over the cap right now, and they would shave a few million dollars while getting better with this trade. So he went on to explain it from Atlanta's and Indiana's perspective as well, Michael. But what do you think? Would you be interested in a Victor Oladipo trade for Boston? Does he fit? And then do you need to get a better option in the middle, like Clint Capella versus Daniel Tice? Or do you need to just upgrade that Enos Kanter, Robert Williams spot as you're looking forward to potentially being a title contender next year? And I ask this question because the more I think about it, and I know you don't want this label. I really do think Boston's heading into this coming season as the Eastern Conference favorite um, because of Tatum's continued growth, because of his uh, partnership with Brown, because of their coaching, because of uh, their just roster balance and everything else. Like, I feel like this is kind of their year, or at least is the, the first of you know a pretty nice window uh, of years to come. And I like the idea that Danny should be uh, aggressive right now to kind of boost that up even more. Yeah, I think, I mean, I I think the window was open this season. I think it'll be open as long as Jason Tatum signs a max contract um, extension, that the window will be open pretty much throughout that tenure, um, being that Jalen is already locked in. Both those guys' internal improvement is just a key part of the organization's future, for sure. Um I think Gordon Hayward is a really intriguing piece if you're trying to just upgrade in the short term. This particular deal makes just like no sense to me uh, if I'm Boston because essentially you're 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 moving Cantor, uh, Romeo Langford, who was a lottery pick last year, uh, three draft picks, three first round draft picks for. Clint Capella, like we're just saying that Gordon, I'm just swapping Gordon and Oladipo 
two like frequently injured guys who we just don't know what the deal is with them and can't be accounted for who are on expiring contracts so they're basically neutral to me so you're moving all of those assets for clint capella when you already have rob williams uh on your con on on your books who is a better value than clint capella who might be a better basketball player than clint capella by the end of next season so like i it just makes no sense to me um i think boston really needs to look forward financially and really value these first round picks that they have because jason tatum is going to be super expensive um uh, kemba walker is on a max contract jalen brown is on a near max contract uh, and building out from there, you're really going to need production out of picks like this. Uh, and Romeo Langford, you're going to need production out of these these types of players. So to acquire Oladipo, who uh, I don't think he pushes you over the edge at all. Uh, honestly, even if he's healthy, I don't know like if he's that markedly a better player or a better fit than Gordon would be if healthy, as it is. So like, yeah, I just I don't I don't like this fake trade as the the too too long. Ch- too long didn't read uh, analysis. I think that Oladipo's got to have more value than Hayward, though, right? I mean, I, I can't think that those are neutral assets at this point. And why would you make that argument? Well, we talked about this in the last episode. Like, Oladipo's coming off a wretched season, injury plagued. Um, he might not be the same player after that thigh, that weird freak thigh injury um, uh, that he suffered last season. So. To me, like Gordon Hayward before he broke his finger in San Antonio against the San Antonio Spurs this season was basically looking like the second best player on the team, arguably the first, looked like an all-star, honestly, Um, and, you know, obviously suffered in the playoffs with the bad ankle sprain and didn't look like a really productive player in the Eastern Conference Finals after he returned, but he's still a very good basketball player. Um, And so when you just kind of compare them, uh, in terms of on-court impact, and then also we're kind of just grading it out like on a one-year scale, right? Who's more valuable in one season? I kind of look at Victor Oladipo as a bigger question mark to me based on what we saw the last time he took the floor versus what we saw from Gordon and the injuries that both have suffered fre- recently. It would be a crazy story if Gordon Hayward is the guy who like carries the Boston Celtics to the promised land. I can't even picture <laughs> that, Michael. <laughs> I don't know about carried, but... Yeah, just be, like, good, and we're good. <laughs> but, yeah. All right, Michael, since you're trying to shoot down Thaddeus's idea and, you know, stand for Gordon Hayward as arguably a top five player in the NBA, apparently, um, do you have a reasonable trade target <laughs> uh, as a current favorite uh, for your Boston Celtics? In other words, if you're not getting in the mix for Victor Oladipo and you're clinging to Gordon Hayward on the hope that he's going to take you, uh, you know, deep into next year's playoffs— uh, who is it that you would like to see Boston uh, uh, pursue? And does it fit sort of with your flexibility approach that you're describing with the draft picks and the salary cap management and all of that? Yeah, so I have a, I, I don't know if he's a polarizing name, a controversial name, um, but a former uh, all-NBA stalwart is the guy I'm talking about, and that is Blake Griffin. Um, Whoa! I would be uh, I would be fascinated if the Boston Celtics took a look at Blake and were able to acquire him. Uh, you know, if the if the the packages for Blake Griffin were not through the roof, and Boston was able to acquire him with one of their first round picks, and maybe I mean the the contract here that has to be included would be Gordon. Uh, Gordon Hayward. Wait a minute! Wait called. a minute! Wait a minute! Wait a minute! Wait a minute! So. 
What is different about Blake Griffin than Victor Oladipo and Gordon Hayward? Aren't they all in the same mix of questionably healthy and all this stuff? And how does well, how does Blake fit with what you're trying to do? Are you playing him at center, or how are you how are you lining up your groups? Well, look, like the Boston Celtics have not had. Um, they didn't have really like a power forward last season at all. I think Blake, if healthy, and by all recent accounts, he's looking pretty good. Uh, Blake with the three point shot. Blake with um, Blake in a defensive system, defense first system for the first time really uh, in his prime as a healthy player. Uh, I think is just a really smart, interesting fit particularly in the playoffs when he can like Blake Griffin is just a a, a mismatch against most teams that have not really valued the front court and defenses in the front court. And this is just like a, a a poor man's version of the argument that I was making about Anthony Davis. Blake Griffin is nowhere near that good, but physically I think that he can create some difficult matchups for you. Um, I think playing him at the four is tenable because of his three point shooting. Um, I think that you could play him at the five as well. And it just balances out the lineup a little bit better than adding Oladipo to the mix and kind of getting even smaller, where you already have Kemba, you already have Jalen, you already have Marcus Smart. That didn't really make a lot of sense to me, just uh, in terms of how their lineup would be constructed. Blake is just... He's just way more interesting. Blake on a team where he's not the number one option and not the number two option is just a really beastly, efficient player, in my opinion, and would help them on the glass, I think. Just a, just a lot of like really interesting things that he could do, that Brad Stevens could do with him. And I know uh, a couple of years ago, they were interested in acquiring him. So at the right price, and that is really key here, I think that he's worth, he's worth uh, taking a flyer on. Well, here's where I come down on it. I don't like Thaddeus's idea, really. I don't like your idea, really, either. Um, I, I think that what we've learned, actually, is is what you're trying to tell us about Gord Hayward's value. Because if you say, which of those guys fit the best, Oladipo, Griffin, or Hayward, let's assume that they're healthy. Like, from a positional standpoint, if you're not trading any of the other core pieces, um, you know, you're keeping Kemba, you're keeping Smart, you're keeping um, Brown and Tatum, I feel like Hayward fits the best of all those three, doesn't he? I don't think that Gordon Hayward is a bad fit. No, not at all. Um, I mean, I, I guess you're you getting a, a little bit extra rebounding and stuff from Blake Griffin, but like if you're saying, okay, well, do you want to just play interchangeably and, and switch a lot and, you know, be aggressive defensively and have multiple guys who can beat you on offense? Like Blake gets into some pound stuff offensively. He can play make, but are you really running the offense through him? Probably not. Is he overqualified no. to be like some spot up corner shooter? Like I don't, I'd rather probably have Hayward in that role. I guess I'm coming back around to the idea. I hate to say it. Maybe Danny just doesn't make a big move. Should he just sit it out like he always does? Hey, I like he always does. <laughs> I I am perfectly fine with uh, with Boston standing pat. I've honestly been like, to be honest, I've been um, a little befuddled and confused by the like. I mean, a lot of it is just like Celtics Twitter, and they're a very weird bunch of people. Um, who get really panicky and aggressive, but like I just uh, standing pat has always seemed like a pretty smart and rational move to me. Um, you have all these draft picks, and obviously that's a little tough when you're trying to contend. And right away, you 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 have the impetus to to move on and get more immediate help, which I understand, and which can be done 
I think through uh, you know we using your mid level exception and losing some of those things and those tools, but like. I don't know. Like, I feel like internal improvement from Jalen and Tatum is just what you're riding on at the end of the day, regardless. And I think Kemba can be uh, uh, what he was before the knee injury next season. He's not going to be that player for much longer, but like one more year, I don't, I just don't think that there's that much of a drop off there. So yeah, stand pat. I'm cool with standing pat. Always good. Yeah, I also think when you were talking about adding like a star level guy or a former star into some of these roles, are they going to be willing to defer to the younger guys? I think Hayward's okay deferring to those guys, right? If you're bringing in Blake Griffin and asking him to like, you know, mm. be like the number third option behind a Tatum and a Brown, or if you're trying to get Oladipo in a contract year push to sacrifice touches to these other guys who have been there before and kind of work in around them, not totally sure how well that works. Look, this is putting an awful lot on Gordon Hayward's shoulders. And, um, you know, he is not particularly reliable to me at all. And that would make me really nervous. So I think if I was a Boston fan, like, you know, some of the guys who are on Twitter that you're describing, I would be really gung-ho <laughs> for a trade, a cash-in trade for sure. Um, but I do think if you're like a more neutral analyst, you could say, give this guy one more shot at it. He does fit well personality-wise, basketball-wise, skill-wise, um, you know, all that kind of stuff and, and see if uh, it plays out. The tricky aspect we should mention too here is that like free agency in the trade window is going to be so tight, right? And you're really going to have to feel like you have to pull the trigger on an awesome move. Like it's a home run type of move to get this done before the start of the season. I think there's going to be a lot of um, a lot of motivation for teams to just kind of like roll over their current groups because the, sh- the off season is so short and because you're not going to have a ton of time to work in new guys. Maybe I'll be proven wrong there, but that also uh, I feel that way because the draft class isn't amazing and because the free agency class isn't amazing either, right? Like I, I do feel like this year is going to feel more like a duplicate of last season than a, a typical year does, especially now when so many players uh, you know, trade markets uh, every single summer. Yeah, maybe you're right. I mean, uh, real quick, just going back to Blake, like, I do think that if his alternatives are stay in Detroit and, you know, how's that working out for you where you're just, you're not good, you're rebuilding, times are tough, or come to the most storied franchise in NBA history and, you know, sacrifice some touches, but you're at a point in your career where you got to sacrifice to win no matter what anyway. So if you want to win a championship, an elusive title, this is your best bet. I don't think the pitch is really that difficult to get him to buy in. And, like, you know, he's at that point in his career. That happens to us all. Maybe. Maybe. I don't know. I can't – I'm having a hard time seeing Blake in green. Maybe it's all those years in L.A. Uh, It's just kind of cognitive dissonance. I don't know. I can't picture it, Michael. I got to say. Are you – so, like, if this were to happen, should I buy – should I – buy the Blake Griffin jersey and send it to you. I don't have your address, so I need I need to get your address first, but I'll I'll mail the the Blake Griffin Celtics jersey for you and when the Celtics win the championship. Yeah, just just maybe Are we going to wear that for a year? Is that like the no, the bet that we're going to have? I think to you make? could just save your money and wait for that 2020 title hat, you know? Um oh, okay. get, you know. <laughs> like he would still have to knock off Anthony Davis in the finals. That's a big ask for Blake Griffin defensively. I'm not sure how much I like that matchup from the Boston Celtics standpoint. Look, I'm just trying to build you guys up a little bit so we can have some excitement when it's Boston Lakers in the finals and it's over in five. You know, it'll be nice to, you know, at least say, oh, hey, I got it on the ground floor early. You guys are a nice, cute story out there in the Eastern Conference. Good job carrying the uh, 
you know, carrying the uh, carrying the weight for uh, the AAA. No, I mean, like, the number one reason why the Lakers should have an asterisk is that AD ducked Marcus Smart. He wanted absolutely no part of that matchup. Oh, so, come on. Yeah, and I, well, we're going into to totally ridiculous places and spaces right now. So if anyone is still listening to this episode, that's where I'm at mentally. That's where we're going to cut it off right there, Michael. <laughs> uh, guys, you can email us, openfloormail at gmail.com, openfloormail at gmail.com. Thaddeus, I did like where you were going with that trade scenario. If you've got other ones, guys, let us know. We will talk them through. It is nice to do some check-ins on some of these top contenders like the Celtics and try to figure out like what is the best path forward is this the year you want to go for it? Is the 2021 title going to wind up looking like an asterisk because it's a shortened season and maybe they're not playing in front of a lot of crowds and all that stuff? I mean, these are uh, a lot of questions we're trying to wrap our minds around in a short period of time. You guys can check us out on Apple Podcasts by searching for Open Floor. That's two words. When you find our page, scroll down. It will say rate and review. Tap five stars. It's just that easy to help us spread the word. Now, Michael's on Instagram and Twitter at Michael Villas and Victor Pina. I'm on Instagram at Ben.Golver on Twitter at Ben Golver. Be sure to sign up for my Washington Post NBA newsletter. It's free. Comes out every single Monday. This week, it's all about uh, the NBA's plans for next season as we start to get ramped up already. Okay, Michael, until later this week, I will talk to you. Talk soon, Ben. MTV's official Challenge podcast is back for another season. And so are we. I'm Tori Deal. And I'm Anissa Ferreira. The wait is over, guys. All Stars 4 is finally here. And this season takes it to a whole new level. Old school legends, modern power players, and ex-lovers are all competing in Cape Town, South Africa for the prize of $300,000. And we're going to be right here along with you fans covering every episode on the podcast. Listen to MTV's official challenge podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Hannah Storm, and my new podcast, NBA DNA with Hannah Storm, chronicles my six decades in professional basketball, from growing up in the sport to becoming one of sports TV's first female broadcasters. Join me as I dig deep into the game's history, unearth some wild stories, and talk to my friends from the world of basketball, from Dr. J to Charles Barkley. It's been a wild ride, and now I get to take you with me. Listen to NBA DNA with Hannah Storm on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. What's up, everybody? This is Stephen A. Smith, host of the Stephen A. Smith Show podcast. Tune in every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday at the very least as I bring you all new episodes that feature the biggest headlines in the world of sports, pop culture, business, and I answer your phone calls and respond to your tweets. You'll hear my unfiltered opinions and straight-shooter interviews with top celebrities and game changers. All that and more. So listen to the Stephen A. Smith Show podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcast. The Nikki Glaser Podcast. Her roast of Tom Brady stole the show. Now she's talking about it on the latest episode of the Nikki Glaser Podcast. I said, tell Tom Brady that I'm the Tom Brady of roasting. Lots of people roasted the goat, but only Nikki is still being talked about. Every time I refresh my DMs, it's 14 blue check marks of people I didn't even know who knew me are writing like paragraphs to me. Hear that in all episodes of the Nikki Glaser Podcast on America's number one podcast network, iHeart. Open your free iHeart app and search the Nikki Glaser Podcast to start listening.